Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The Bible is not going to teach radically different messages from the context of what it was taught in. You want to know when you're studying a passage, who was it written to? Why did he write it? What did it mean to them? And what it meant to the Hebrews is not going to be radically different to what he means to us by the same passage. That's how people twist scriptures like Satan did. How do we make sure we don't end up believing strange doctrines that come from men and not from God? We compare scripture with scripture. We read it in context, fervently seeking God's truth. And we look at how God used it in the past to teach his people what it meant to them and what that same passage means to us today. Here comes more from Hebrews 13 verses 8 through 14 with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson. Show me one place where it says, if you're struggling with nicotine or alcohol or a bad habit or a sexual sin, then get a demon cast out of you because it's the demon making you do it. No place. But this doctrine around and around and around it goes. There was a guy named Derek Prince in the 70s. Any of you guys remember him? He had a deliverance ministry. That's what they called it, a deliverance ministry. And in this deliverance ministry, you would come to his deliverance, he would start to preach, and then he would start to preach against the demonic spirits that were in people, and then all of a sudden, people in the room would start to throw up various and strange doctrines. But you know what breaks my heart is how many Christians buy into this stuff. A few years later, there was a guy named Anderson that wrote a book about Christians that did, he said Christians can't be demon-possessed, but what happens with Christians is that the demons latch on. And that he had a special gift by God that he could see where the demons had latched on to people. So he would be like preaching and he would have people stand up. You stand up. And they would stand up because I see a demon attached to your shoulder. I see a demon attached to your arm. I see a demon attached to your or whatever it was that he saw the demon attached to. And so I call them Klingons. It was the doctrine of Klingons. I see a demon clinging on. I let's get him off of there. Can I set my phaser on stun? Get that Klingon off of there. And, and you know, the thing is, here, there's people in our church, they're hearing the Word of God every week. We have this foundation of God's Word being taught, and people are coming up to me and go, I read Anderson's book last week, and I think that I've got a Klingon of lust, and no wonder I can't get rid of it. And I'm like, there's no Klingon hanging on to you. I'm not saying Satan can't oppress you or try to oppress you, but where does this nonsense come from? Various and strange doctrines. And it sounds good. It's a good presentation. They're pre presenting themselves as angels of light. Now, Paul, when he left Ephesus, he'd been there for three years. He taught in the school of Tyrannius daily for two years. When he wrote the letter to the Ephesus, it's the highest doctrinal letter he ever wrote. It's the heights of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's the Mount Everest of the New Testament. You want to read about the deep things of God? Then do an in-depth study on the book of Ephesians. It's phenomenal. It really is. It's powerful. And um, Paul, when he left Ephesus, he gathered together the elders. These were the pastors he was leaving in charge. And he wept. He cried. Because he said, I know when I go, ravenous wolves are going to feed on the flock. They're going to see you guys and ravenous wolves are going to come. And in order for the ravenous wolves, these are guys from the outside. These are guys that want to bring their weird doctrines in. Pastors got to be on their game. They need to see when the ravenous wolves make their way in and they need to get them out because they can come in and feed on the flock. We try to do that. 
When we see somebody coming in, bringing various and strange doctrines or taking advantage of the flock or trying to fleece the flock, and we try to remove them as soon as we can. And people say, well, you're not really walking in love because you removed them. No, we're walking in love towards the sheep because that's what we are as shepherds, right? We're not walking in love towards the wolf. We're whacking the wolf, we're walking in love towards the sheep. And if we could see the wolf repent, more power to it. That's great. But our first goal is to keep the sheep protected from those things. But then he said this, but also in your presence, men are going to rise up to draw attention to themselves. These are opportunists. These are men with ambition that are in the body already. And these are more dangerous than those wolves that come from outside because they're easy to see. These are guys that rise up within the body. And we've had that happen a couple of times. We had an assistant pastor in our church. It was years ago now, but he rose up and he began to get involved in this weird doctrine that when a 13-year-old boy hits 13, he's a man, and that a girl is never really a woman. She's either got to live under her father or she's got to live to who, who she gets married to, and she doesn't really have these, these rights that are out there, and that a woman's uh, significance in front of God is having children, and, and if you don't have children and a bunch of children, then you're really not serving God at all because the command was given in Genesis to populate the earth, and if you're not populating the earth, you aren't doing what God's doing. And they're talking Calvary doesn't teach this and Calvary doesn't take a stand and, and, and Calvary doesn't really think, believe that, that boys are men at 13. They started talking like that. And when we got a hold of it, and this is a guy from our fellowship, this is a pastor that's on staff and 30 or 40 people kind of started to believe him and follow him. And when we found out about it and I told him, you're, you think your son's a man at 13? You're gonna let him go out and make man? I said, I said you're crazy. I said, that's about as whack as it gets. He smiled at me the whole time I'm telling him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think your daughter can never go out and live on her own? Nope, nope. She's either going to live with me or her husband. She can never go out on her own. You know, that's whack, don't you? Yep. <laughs> yep. I realize that's whack. Well, after we finally removed him, and unfortunately, about 30 people left to go with him, and he thought that I was upset that people left the church. So when I saw him later on, I saw him in a movie. There was a Christian movie that was playing, and me and my daughter went, and I saw him, and I ran into him up at the concession stand, and he said to me, listen, I just want you to know there's only a handful of people from Calvary that go to our church, and so it's no big deal. And I said, I tried to explain to him, I don't care about the numbers of people that go. If you guys want to go start a real solid church, or if some of you want to go out and start a real solid church, more power to you. I'm happy. You're going to stay true to the Word of God. I said, I care about the people that left that are now involved in these bizarre doctrines. It's a shepherd that cares that his sheep have now been fleeced. That's what I care about. But he didn't have that. He thought that I just cared about the fact that people left. And of course, he went down the street, right? Of course, he found himself two or three blocks down the road. He isn't going to leave and go across town. God told me to start a church down the street. Well, of course he did. <laughs> Why would he tell you anything different than to start one down the street where you can continue to try to feed on the, the flock that's there? So we need to watch for those that rise up among us that are just opportunists that are trying to fleece the flock. The way we do that and the way that could have been cut off completely is that we don't get caught up by various and strange doctrines. That when you hear somebody say something that's bizarre and weird, like a woman only finds her self-worth in having babies, really? What about a woman that can't have a baby? She now have no self-worth? Women only find spiritual self-worth in having babies? Now you guys know how I feel, don't you? There's absolutely no question in how I feel. A woman finds her self-worth in Jesus Christ just like a man finds his self-worth. It's in Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Preach it. Now, there's all kinds of other various and strange doctrines that are out there. We need to avoid them. The only way we can avoid them is knowing what the Bible says, knowing them in their context. The Bible is not going to teach radically different messages from the context of what it was taught in. You want to know when you're studying a passage, who was it written to? Why did he write it? What did it mean to them? And what it meant to the Hebrews is not going to be radically different to what he means to us by the same passage. That's how people twist scriptures like Satan did. They take a passage that meant one thing to who it was written to. They twist it to mean something else and they quote it. When you go back and look at it, it doesn't mean that at all. So that's how we stay true to, to not getting caught up in various and strange doctrines by making sure that we're studying the Bible with what it means, comparing scripture to scripture, as the Bible says, so that you and I don't end up being deceived. And then it says, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. He says, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And don't get caught up in these various doctrines, but it's good for the heart to be established by grace. When the heart's established in Christ and in grace, the roots go deep. There's some of you guys here and you've known the Lord. You love him. You know his word. You study it. You love it. You read it. You pray. And your hearts are established in grace. What does established mean? You can't be moved. When a business is established, it's, it's, it's past the danger of folding. New businesses, one out of every two new businesses fold, maybe even higher number than that, by the way. It's hard to start a new business. But once you get a new business past a certain place and it's established, then it's going to remain. It's going to take a lot to, to uproot it. That's what he's saying about Christianity. Some of you guys are established really well. And you guys, quite frankly, those of you that are established really well in grace, you guys aren't the one that's in danger from the various and strange doctrines that are out there, from ravenous wolves that come from the outside or men, uh, ambitious men, self-seeking men that rise up inside to take men to themselves. You aren't the ones who are in danger. It's those of you here that aren't established in the word. You're the ones who are in danger. It's those of you here that don't really know what you believe and why you believe it. it has, you haven't begun to own it yet. You need to study the scriptures yourself. You need to know why you believe what you believe. You need to really have a desire to know what the truth is. You just can't count on what I say there's going to come a point where you're going to disagree with what I say because the Bible says if a man stumbles in what he says, he is not, he, he is a perfect man. And I want to tell you, I'm not perfect. Just ask my children. <laughs> I'm not a perfect individual, which means that I, I can get ideas. I can get slants on scripture that someone can come up to me after the service and go, you know, you said this, but it says this here. And I was just wondering, and, and have you ever gone up to a pastor and he gets defensive? You've gone up to a pastor and you've said, listen, you've taught that, but this says this here. I was wondering, how does that work? And he goes, don't, don't you ever question God's anointed. The reason that I know that is because I am a pastor. That's why I know. You know, the, the reason pastors do that is because they're insecure about their position. And I would say, listen, if God's established you about being a pastor, just settle down. All right. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things you shouldn't have said. Sometimes you won't just not have some insight into it. This takes time to learn. And if, when you guys, and those of you who have come up to me with questions like this, you realize that. When someone comes up to me and goes, look, you taught this tonight, but here it says this. What do you, what do you think about that? Here's what I do. Huh. Huh. Well, let me look into that. I don't know. Maybe I taught it wrong. 
For me to think that I teach everything 100%, that I know every passage in the Bible, I connect all the dots the way that they're supposed to be connected would just be arrogant. For one person to say, I'll never make a mistake. I know everything in the Bible. I know it all. Don't you question me. I'm God's anointed. Don't you come against God's anointed. It's just an arrogance that would make a man completely ineffective. Question what's being taught. If you see that it's different, question it. I'm giving you permission to come up and question it. I'm not insecure in my position. I believe God's placed me here, but I don't believe in that God placing me here, that I'm perfect. If I'm teaching something's wrong, I want to know. I want to know there's another passage that brings light into it that I might be able to really get it and go, oh, wow, thank you. How do you know that the Holy Spirit might not be using you to bring that correction in? God uses the body, right, to really, to really work it out. Now, don't get nitpicky, all right? Don't <laughs> realize I'm opening myself up to some trouble here because... You guys are going to come up and say, you said Samson when you meant Barak. That was an accident, okay? And you guys know I do a lot of that, right? So I'm not telling you got to come up and tell me every mistake I make from the pulpit, all right? I know when I make those things. But you understand what I'm saying. Now, it says, uh, for it's good for the heart to be established by grace, and grace is undeserved favor. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. More specifically, grace is God blessing you with what you don't deserve. So God establishes us by grace. God doesn't establish us because we've gone out there and done all of our homework and we read the Bible more than anybody and we pray more than anybody and therefore our roots are established down. God establishes us by grace. We don't deserve to be as established in God as we are, but if we put a little bit of effort into it, God's grace will pour over us and we'll be established in him by grace. Our roots will grow deep and we'll find ourselves when that wind of doctrine comes blowing through, our hair will be messed up in the end, and that's all. We're going to go, you know what? That's whack. That is a crazy doctrine, and that is not part of what the Bible says. And I love it so much when people from this fellowship don't even know why something's wrong. When someone begins to teach it, you just go, I'm not quite sure what scriptures really say that's wrong, but I don't think that's right. The Bible says, receive the word of God with all joy, but study it to see if those things are so. Be open to receive what's being taught, but check it out yourself and see whether or not those things are so. It then goes on to say, by grace, not with foods which have not perfected those that have been occupied with them. He brings up one area that there's various and strange doctrines about. That is food. This has happened over the years uh, throughout church history. Food has been brought up as a way. Listen, you got to deny yourself certain food. You can't be a Christian and be eating chocolate cake, okay? You just can't do it because, you know, you need to have some discipline. If you discipline yourself with chocolate cake, then you're not going to be in lust. But why does Colossians say the denial of the body has no help in battling the sins of the flesh? It kind of makes sense on a logical kind of a way. Listen, if I can, if I can d discipline myself that I don't eat chocolate cake or I don't eat anything I like, all I eat is bread and water. And that's all that I eat unless I like bread and I got to eat, I don't know, sardines and water, something I don't like. And if I discipline myself to do that, then I'm going to discipline the other areas of my life. And so this weird doctrine comes through and there's a bunch of people out there eating sardines and waters, trying to overcome the lust in their lives. And the Bible says in Colossians, when you deny your body, it doesn't bring any, any battle against the things of the flesh. Like people who fast, I'm going to fast because I want to get rid of this sin in my life. Well, it's not what fasting's for. Fasting's very powerful. It's got a very real purpose, but its purpose is not to try to get you to win over some kind of sin in your life. That's not what it's about. And so there's all kinds of things. Hey, you want to make a lot of money? 
You guys are all looking at me like, that's a trick question from you. <laughs> you want to make a lot of money? I'll tell you how to make a lot of money. Now, you might also go to hell, but you know, I mean, you can make a lot of money, you might go to hell. But if you decided to come up with a biblical diet, if you went back to the Bible and you looked at every place where they eat something in the Bible, and then you talk about the nutrient values of those things in the Bible, and you come out with a biblical diet, you can work the circuit talking about the biblical diet. You can get somebody that weighs a lot and lose a lot of weight on the biblical diet. And you'll have examples of it. And then you'll run around going, this is the biblical diet. This is the way that God wants us to eat. I'm telling you, the world's ripe for it now. You want to make a lot of money except you have to use God's word for your own selfish ends. And that's a problem. But it seems like a lot of people don't care. I really shouldn't be giving people ideas on how to make money off of God's word. But it uh, doesn't matter what you eat, right? And if people come up with, look, I, went on, I got on this diet. And when I did, I found myself so close to Jesus. Just come back to this verse, okay? Go back to the verse in Colossians. What we eat doesn't make a difference spiritually. So let's go get a big fat cheeseburger. Okay? Because what we eat doesn't make a difference spiritually. No, it makes a difference to the waistline. It's kind of like bodily exercise profits little. Eating good profits little. But godliness is, profit, is profiting to all things. I kind of added to the word of God there, and you guys understand that, right? It does say bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable to all because there's people that get caught up in exercise. Listen, I've never been closer to Jesus than when I've exercised. Man, you know what? I started doing yoga, and when I started doing yoga and I started meditating on scriptures while I was doing yoga, I've never been closer to Jesus than before. That's the real secret to the spiritual life is doing yoga. Really? Where, where's that at? Second Opinions chapter four? Where, is that exactly where? Where do you find that in the Bible? All right, so then it goes on to say here, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. An altar was the brass altar. It had a grate on top of it. You would open it up to clean out the wood that you, that you would put in it. You would put the animals on it and you would sacrifice the animals. They would smear blood on the brass that the altar was made out of. It was made out of wood and brass. They would smear blood on the brass. Altar. An altar was a place where God's justice was met. An altar isn't the stage at the front of a church. An altar is a place you meet with God, but you meet with them there about your sins. And it says, we have an altar, verse 10, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. That altar is the cross. That is the altar. That's the bloody altar where the justice of God was met and we found our forgiveness. Two things came together at the altar in the temple and in the tabernacle. The justice of God, which demanded to be met, and the, the forgiveness of sin. And so at the altar, animals lost their lives to satisfy God's justice, but to forgive sin. And at the cross, our altar, a man who had known no sin became sin for us. He paid a debt he didn't know, and we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And so at the cross, at our altar, the justice of God is satisfied by the death of a righteous man as our substitute and our sins are forgiven. That's the altar that we go to. And it goes on to say, for the bodies of those animals which blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside of the camp. The sin offering was burned outside of the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people by his own blood suffered outside of the gate. 
That's why Jesus died outside of the gates of the city of Jerusalem, because he was a type of the sin offering that they would take outside of the camp and burn it. It says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For there we have no continuing city. That is, let me read that again correctly. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that is to come. In other words, we got to get out of the camp. Come out from among them and be separate. We can't be part of this world and, and serving Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we got to go out and live in a commune somewhere, all share our food and live, you know, like the hippies did. Doesn't mean that we join a monastery, but we go outside of the camp. We are not. You tell the same dirty jokes, you watch the same TV shows and movies, you, you, you read the same stuff, you listen to the same music, and you go to church on Sunday and say, praise God, I'm a Christian. You probably got problems there with whether or not you're really a genuine Christian because the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. And your life is going to look radically different than the lives of those who, who aren't Christians. If your life looks just like them, there's a problem. But we go outside of the camp. Now, Jesus said, Lord, I don't pray that they would leave the world, come out of the world, but I pray that they would live for you in the world. So he doesn't want us to go join communes and get out of the cities. He wants us to be in the cities and be different in the cities. Come out from among them and be separate. Uh, we as Christians, there, there's always going to be those various and strange doctrines. People are always, it's like the Gnostics. Hey, listen, man, you can be living with all kinds of sin. You can be involved sexually. You can be having affairs. You can be having adultery. You can be smoking the, the weed. You can be, you know, getting high. You can be telling dirty jokes. You can be drinking alcohol, getting, the, getting your buzz on every day. And you're still a Christian. It's okay. All right. Various and strange doctrine. Okay. One that appeals to the flesh. One that tickles your ears. Oh, I like that. I like that. I can go live for my flesh and still be a Christian. Uh, no, you can't. It's a very strange doctrine. Come out from among them and be ye separate, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Live differently. Because as you live differently, people see Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you find the real joy of the Christian life. If getting your buzz on and going out and, and carousing, looking for sex and uh, living for the things that are ungodly, watching the filthy stuff or listening to the filthy music, that's really what life and godliness were all about, then why, why'd you even leave it? Why'd you ever go to look for anything different? Why'd you ever head towards Christ? So if you really want those things, then don't play a game. Don't, don't go. You want them, go. You, you want to serve those things? You want to live for, after them? Then go. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't come to church and pretend like, oh, I'm so spiritual and you're living in those things. Just go. Make a decision. Either give everything you've got to God or give everything to the world. You're headed that way anyway because Jesus isn't going to let you stay on the fence. He knocks you off. He doesn't let you stay there. So stop playing the game and just go. Just be honest. One of the things that Jesus hated the most was hypocrisy. Just go. The world's got what you need, then go. But if Jesus has what you need, come out from among this world. Go outside the camp. And meet with Jesus and let the power of God be used in your life to touch the hearts and the lives of those around you. Stand with me and pray. I'm late. I know. Shocking. <laughs> Father, we want to thank you again for your word. It really and truly is powerful. We pray that we would not be tossed to and fro by various and strange doctrines, but that we would have our hearts established by your grace, that we would know what we believe and how to test those that teach something that is wrong. We want to stay true to your word 
And we pray that we would be able to identify ravenous wolves that want to come in and attack us and be able to to identify men in our midst that want to be raised up to draw people to themselves. Help us see it clearly from a distance. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.